Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Uh, Today we're going to talk about baptism. And so I've entitled our message, Baptism in Your Spiritual Journey. And for those of you who have kids, uh, this is an issue that you're going to have to sort of, in a sense, pastor your children through this discussion as they get to the right age for this. And for some of you, you just might have an experience that, that may or may not line up with Scripture. And I just really want you to have an open heart as we walk through this uh, today. Uh, next weekend, we're going to have our missions weekend. I've got something special planned for that. And then after that, we'll be uh, in the Advent season. But today, we're going to talk about baptism. When, true story, when Ole quit farming and moved, he discovered he was the only Lutheran in his new town of all Catholics. That was okay, but the neighbors had a problem with his barbecuing beef every Friday. They were not allowed to eat red meat on Fridays, but the tempting aroma was getting the best of them. Beside themselves, they got together and they confronted Oli, the only Lutheran in their town. Oli, they said, since you are the only, well, this is, this is, you know, Lutheran country, so since you are the only Lutheran in this whole town, and there's not a Lutheran church for many miles, we think you should join our church and become a Catholic. Oli thought about it for a minute and decided they were right. He talked to the priest and they arranged it. The big day came and the priest had Oli kneel. He put his hand on Oli's head and he said, Oli, you were born a Lutheran, you were raised a Lutheran, and now, he said as he sprinkled uh, incense over Oli's head, you are a Catholic. Both Oli and the neighbors were happy. But the following Friday evening, the aroma of grilled beef still wafted from Oli's yard. The neighbors went to talk to him about this, and as they approached the fence, they heard Oli saying something strangely familiar to the stake. You were born a beef, you were raised a beef, and now, he said, as he sprinkled salt over the meat, you are a fish. (laughs) Not a true story. Sometimes when I say things, I sure hope you know when I'm kidding, but I'm learning you may or may not, so I'll be a little more clear about that. Oli is clearly overestimating what we call the value of ceremony. Ceremony by itself can be meaningless. In fact, you know, when you look in the Old Testament, God commands all kinds of ceremony, especially in the sacrificial system. Yet God criticized those who practice ceremony without the right heart accompanying it. In fact, there are times where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, he kind of means it and he kind of doesn't because he commanded sacrifice. But his point is, ceremony without the accompanying right heart attitude is meaningless. But ceremony matters. Many years ago, I met a woman named Deanna Savage. My kids are disappointed I didn't take her name, Deanna Savage. And after getting to know her, I fell in love, which is man speak for she checked all the boxes. And that was supposed to be funny. That would have been funnier in the States. I'm sorry. But guys don't know when to say they love somebody. It's really hard because we're so left brain. And so it's literally almost a right column, left column situation. Then when you realize you've got the best female possibility you can get in the world at that time, you say, okay, I love you, I love you. 
but it was the perfect match. She loved God, I loved God. She had biblical values, I had biblical values. She loved life, I loved life. She loved me, I loved me. It was the perfect relationship. So after other potential suitors went missing mysteriously, and after one of her many marriage proposals, I relented and said yes. I may have exaggerated a tad. Dee Dee will be available afterwards for the truth. But once we decided to be a couple, why not just live together? I mean, we were committed. We, we loved each other. God knew our hearts. That should be enough, right? So why not just live together? Does the ceremony really matter? Well, Every culture in the world has a ceremony in some manner for marriage. And every culture has an understanding of what sexuality is before and after marriage. It matters. The ceremony matters. It legitimizes sexual expression morally. And actually, statistically, it improves the chances of marriage survival at a level you'd be shocked. It creates a safe and secure place for love to thrive. Ceremony matters. That's baptism. It is a ceremony that's a part of our spiritual journey. You don't want to have the heart without the ceremony, but the ceremony matters. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 8. It's on page 98 in the New Testament, in the Bible near you. Acts chapter 8 is one of the many examples we have in the early church of sort of the the progress through one's spiritual journey. And I want to use this as an example of the normative use of baptism in the New Testament. Acts chapter 8, page 98, beginning in verse 26. Chapter 8, verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of somebody else? Well then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, or as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, this is kind of an interesting passage. I've never really paid much attention to this. The spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. 
Now, first, a little context. The story of the Ethiopian eunuch is an outcome of the Great Commission to disciple and baptize all nations. This story is an outcome of Jesus' command to disciple and baptize all nations. Now, that, this first point is about context, but it's very important. The Old Testament was very different as it related to, you know, sort of ceremony and what faith looked like. People have always come to God through faith, but they didn't necessarily have as much knowledge. They didn't understand Jesus then. But the Old Testament was mostly a plan to reach the world through one nation. So when you get to Genesis 12, all the way through the end of the Old Testament, it's Jewish. It's very Jewish. Because it was about a plan to reach the world through Israel. Israel was to be a light to the world. God would supernaturally bless her. Her obedience was her guarantee that God would bless her. In fact, the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy describe this deal. Deuteronomy is literally written in treaty form. So it's a treaty between God and Israel. If you obey me, I will bless you. And then on this, you know, little piece of semi-arid land between three continents and all the major trade routes, God would lift up this nation, he would make her a light to the world, and others would come to know who he is. But she had to obey him, and she often did not. So that did not work out as expected. She lost that blessing. When Jesus came as a Jewish Messiah, he was accepted by many, but he was rejected by his own people, by most of them. But God had a broader plan, and Jesus had begun to introduce it, and that would be the church of Jesus Christ. No longer would God's light be from one nation, Israel, to all nations. Now it would be from people called out from all nations. That's the difference between the Old and the New Testament. We're now in the church age. It's Greek word ekklesia, literally means called out ones. So we've been called out from all nations. Word means assembly or we call it the church. Jesus reiterated it many times what that would look like. We know it as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is called the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, baptism is introduced as this universal sign that people are following Jesus. There wasn't much baptism in Jewish culture before this. We have John the Baptist, but before that, there was a little bit, I think, of an immersion when Gentiles came into Judaism, but not much. Some of the cults of the day, some of the false religions practiced some form of it, but not much. This was a big deal. Baptism would be this symbol. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is where uh, Jesus says, right before he leaves the planet, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's talking to his disciples, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. So Jesus there states how the gospel's going to spread from right where they are in Jerusalem to the end of the earth. And what's interesting is Acts the book of Acts actually follows that geographical outline. If you want to understand what Acts is about, if you don't have the book of Acts, you don't understand how, how Christianity became non-Jewish. The book of Acts outlines it as the gospel goes from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria, non-Jewish, to the othermost parts of the earth, and it outlines the progress. Acts 8 is in that outline, if you will. 
It's part of this progress as the gospel is going from Jerusalem to these other geographical and people groups. It's expanding to Gentiles. In this case, this Ethiopian eunuch. He's a high-ranking African official. Eunuch may mean either that he has lost his manhood so that he can be trusted with a queen or with sort of a, a, a group of uh, women in the court, maybe a harem, so they would cause that to happen to a man, or it could simply mean high official. Based on the context here, my suspicion is this poor chap is behind door number one. So he's been on this spiritual journey, and maybe he's heard about Jesus. Maybe he's heard about the resurrection rumors. We're not sure. Maybe Jesus, or maybe Jews from Africa were at Pentecost where the gospel was poured out and the church began and 3,000 people from all kinds of nations came to faith. The church was born that day. Maybe some had gone back to Africa. But this gentleman has procured or purchased, and this is a big deal. Remember, we didn't have the printing press back then. He's purchased a scroll of the Old Testament book of Isaiah and he's reading it and he doesn't understand it. And he's on a passage about the suffering Messiah, which we know looks back on Jesus' crucifixion, looks forward to it from the Old Testament. And God has a track record of finding people. You can hear all kinds of mission stories about tribes overseas who are really seeking to understand the true God and they recognize their idols aren't enough and then a missionary will come to them and you see these sovereign miracles almost and he sends Philip to this man uniquely because this man has a seeking heart to explain the gospel to him. And that brings us to the primary thing we're gonna talk about. The normative order of events on a spiritual journey in the early church was first, spiritual understanding of the gospel, then faith in Jesus Christ, and then finally, baptism. Now this is a big deal, and I know it doesn't match some of your spiritual journeys, so I'm asking you to keep an open heart. If everyone agreed on a few basic issues here, we could eliminate half of the denominations in Christendom because there's so much disagreement about this basic issue, it's why we have most of the denominations that we have. Baptism theology has created a lot of confusion. That confusion is actually so significant that it's actually led to false views or wrong views of salvation and how we're even made right before God. It's a big deal. This story is what we typically see in the New Testament. The gospel is taught, the gospel is embraced, and when I mean that, I mean this. We believe that Jesus is God's son, we trust in his atonement, that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, and we commit to following him. So when the gospel is embraced, Jesus is the son of God, savior, and Lord. Those things are all embraced in that faith commitment. That's an internal commitment. It might be a prayer of faith, it might be just a scent of the heart, but to be a Christian, you need to believe that Jesus is the son of God, that what he did on the cross saves us, rescues us, and that we're willing to follow him, his lordship. And then after that, this new believer was baptized. That implies that believer's baptism is the biblical norm. It implies that the Baptists are right on baptism, and I believe they are. 
they're wrong on cards, movies, alcohol, and dancing. But they're right on baptism. So what happened? How did we end up with four theological positions on this issue, on something that's so critical? And what if your experience doesn't fit with what the Bible actually dictates in this area? Good questions. So here are the four views of baptism. I'm gonna give it a little church history lesson here. First, there is sacramental view number one. And that view says that baptism itself saves. It's a sacrament. It's a means of receiving God's grace or salvation through the church. Now, if you were to study the history of this, uh, they would say in the Latin that baptism operates ex apere operato, and that means it works by itself. The baptism itself saves. It, it, it is a means through which the church confers salvation. If you're an infant, faith isn't even necessary where age doesn't allow faith because a baby can't really exercise faith. So baptism itself confers salvation. I married a Catholic girl. She would have grown up with that belief in, 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 a, or in a diocese that taught that, that baptism itself saves. Now, if you were raised Catholic, I want to be fair to the Catholics, they're assuming that when you come to an age, go through confirmation, catechism, things like that, that faith will you know, real, come to fruition and bear fruit. But the reality is, they're still saying that when they sprinkle that little baby, that's it. That's heaven. All right, that's a pretty big deal. The second view is sacramental view number two. And this view is that baptism saves, but it must be accompanied by faith. Now Martin Luther really came up with this. He probably wasn't alone. There are many reformers in that era. But I'm gonna call this the Lutheran view. Was Martin Luther Lutheran or Catholic? You're afraid to answer. He's Catholic. He wasn't trying to start Lutheranism. He was a reformer in the Catholic Church who became so unpopular that the Catholic Church wanted him dead, but he was protected by the king of the country he was in. And so he took a lot of Catholicism and put a spin on certain theological issues. He maintained his Catholic roots, but he also said, sola scriptura, only the scriptures are gonna determine what we believe, not the scriptures plus what the Vatican says. So he was rejecting the centralized church authority at the time a little bit. Only the scriptures, sola scriptura, sola fide, only faith. Only by faith do we come to God, not through works. And he had felt like the Catholic church was a little bit uh, off in that area, so he's emphasizing only faith, yet he's Catholic. Martin Luther is Catholic. So he believes in infant baptism, but he needs to put a spin on it and he recognizes that. So he's saying that little babies can be saved, baptism does confer salvation, but faith must accompany it. And so you say, well how do you get faith to accompany a, a two month old baby or a, a two week old baby? And what happened was there was the development then, and I think this came mostly out of Lutheranism, of what we call vicarious faith. It's an act or experience on behalf of another. If you watch sports today, I'm gonna to watch my team lose again today. I'm so frustrated. I, I, God's team, the Green Bay Packers, are losing. It doesn't look good theologically. Anyway, 
You know, over and over, they're losing. But I'm gonna experience a vicarious experience today. I'm gonna be watching that team and I'm gonna be depressed because I'm living out my experience through them and they're awful right now. Vicarious experiences are when you experience something on behalf of another. In this arena of faith, that means that the the parents or the sponsors experience faith on behalf of the child that's conferred to the child. So in Lutheranism, you've got vicarious faith. It's faith on behalf of another, and that's this second sacramental view. There is a belief that the child is saved through not its own faith, but the faith of others. Third view, the covenant view. If you were raised covenant church or Presbyterian church, you don't have the same mix in Canada that we had in the States. I came from a part of the country that was like a third Catholic, a third Lutheran, and a third everything else. And up here you've got a large Catholic presence, not as many other Protestant denominations. It's interesting. But if you were raised Presbyterian or something like that, this was probably what you were taught. They believe that baptism does not save, they'll still baptize babies, but it does replace Jewish circumcision as a sign of God's covenant or his promises. So that's why it's called the covenant view. So if I'm raised in a covenant church, my parents baptized me because they're part of the people of God, just like Old Testament Israel was the people of God, Old Testament Israel would have circumcised little boys as a sign that they're part of the covenant promises. Covenant people baptize their children as a sign that they're part of the covenant promises. It's not faith, it doesn't save them, it identifies them as part of the people of God. So infant baptism is common there as well, but there's an expectation that when those children reach a certain age, there'll be their own sort of public declaration of faith. And then you have the fourth view, which is believer's baptism. Baptism is a public testimony, an external declaration of an inward belief. And it happens once a person is a believer. That's the key with believer's baptism. So the point is, it's trying to follow this New Testament example which we elucidated earlier. The gospel was taught to this this, uh, Ethiopian eunuch, this young man, the gospel was taught. He's reading the Bible. He doesn't understand it. Philip explains it. The gospel is then believed and accepted, and Philip embraces Jesus as Son of God, Savior, and Lord, and then baptism makes it public. He's asking the question. He says to Philip, dude, it's in the Greek, dude, where's water? In fact, I see water what's preventing me from being baptized? And Philip's like, yeah, you you may, you're ready. So then the question that should come to your mind is how did we get infant baptism then permeating Christendom? And, And is it causing confusion? And does my own experience seem biblical or church cultural? So here's what's happened. Well, first I want to say this. There is no example of infant baptism in the New Testament. There just isn't. Now, I know that some of you have read the Bible and read into the Bible that there is, but I'm gonna actually read for you because we do have time. We do have time. I'm gonna read for you a little bit of a story about it because this is where it, is often, uh, it often comes from. Acts chapter 16. 
is a story here. Paul and Silas are in prison for preaching the gospel. They're having a, they're having a hymn sing. Some of you like hymn sings. It comes from Acts chapter 16. They're having a hymn sing. They're, they're singing. They're praising God. They've been beaten. You know, they're trying to forget their wounds. Prisoners are listening to them. And there's an earthquake. The prison shakes. All the doors are opened. Everyone's chains are unfastened. Everyone could have broken out and gotten away, which meant the jailer would have been executed for losing them. The jailer wakes up. He sees the prison door open. He drew his sword. He's about to kill himself. Verse 27, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Paul says, hey, wait, 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 wait. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. He called for the lights, rushed in, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. After he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I mean, these guys have been witnessing in prison. They were relentless. You couldn't shut them up. You didn't want to be chained to those two. Oh, my goodness, a nightmare. Probably even irritating if you're a Christian. Just can't stop them. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. There's the word household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them together, and all who were with them in I'm sorry, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and, food, and uh, set food before them, and rejoicing greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. All right, this is where infant baptism comes from, partly in the Bible. Here's the problem. The word household doesn't mean household like it does to us. When I think of a household, I think I'm thinking of, you know, you and your nuclear family, you and your nuclear family, like mom and dad and, you know, Billy Bob and Johnny and Sarah. That's a household. That is not a household in Rome. Let me tell you what's going on here. A household in Rome would be this Philippian jailer, his wife and kids, possibly his parents and her parents, a whole boatload of, forgive me, slaves and their families. There could be 30 to 50 people in this household. When he brought Paul and Silas back to his household, the gospel was get, given sort of to a small church and they all received it and they all were baptized. If there were a couple little infants in there, which it doesn't say there are, it's possible. And Paul, in that context, would not have felt the need to say everyone there was saved and baptized except for there was this two-year-old who was nursing and that one wasn't. He wouldn't have needed to explain it because we're not talking about a family. We're talking about almost a little clan or colony here. But there's no statement of infant baptism. The Catholic Catechism, 1252, admits I have a Catholic catechism in my office, and it admits to no clear proof of infant baptism in the apostolic era. Now here, the Church of England, which would be the Episcopal Church of Canada, the Episcopal Church of the U.S., etc., the Church of England. I could show you the document. I've got it in one of my past baptism sermons. It admits to no conclusive evidence for infant baptism in the New Testament. The Catholic Church... Protestant churches that baptize infants recognize there is not a clear example of it in the New Testament. Infant baptism was the result of the theology of original sin, the rise of sacramentalism, and the rise of centralized church authority. Now let me explain this. Okay, so the rise of uh, the theology of original sin. In the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament not have? The book of Romans. 
When Paul wrote the book of Romans and probably some other epistles as well, you see how in Adam we all sinned. You know, there, there's much more of a sense of that babies are inherently sinful. We're born in sin even before we sin. When that theology was developed, there was sort of an anxiousness in the church. Well, how do we deal with little Johnny? I have a little Johnny, and believe me, he has original sin. <laughs> So did my daughter, who almost got kicked out of the church nursery for biting, which she got from me, I must admit. So these little kids, they're, they're sinners before they can exercise faith. And in the early church, when you deal with infant mortality, the question is, so what happens when these little, these little buggers are sinners? They are, and they haven't had a point where they can come to faith. So you have that going on. The theology of original sin arise in sacramentalism. There started to be theologians taking things like baptism and communion and adding meaning to them that I don't believe was intended in the scriptures. And then they came up with these things like the baptism itself, ex operato works by itself, it confers salvation. Along with that, there's a rise in centralized church authority. You have the development of the church and eventually the papacy by the time you get to the fourth century, at least in Catholicism. And it all sort of coincided to create infant baptism that saves us. But it doesn't come from the scriptures. Interestingly, and I I forgot to put this on one of the slides there. It wouldn't have fit anyway. Tertullian. One of the church fathers in 215 AD writes a a treatise, sort of his, he writes a term paper on baptism. He's completely against infant baptism. The early church fathers, many of them, they're against infant baptism. They're talking about the problems with this. So it's not like infant baptism happens in the apostolic era and the church just skates through to the 21st century and we've been doing it all along. It was highly controversial in the third century because it never came out of the scriptures. It's, it's beyond the normal order of events in the salvific process, which was, the gospel is taught, Jesus is embraced, he's believed in as son of God, savior and Lord, and then baptism is a testimony, an external testimony to that inward belief. So the big question is, what if my spiritual journey doesn't match this order of events? Now here's where I'm in the pew in front of you and it's gonna feel like I got my finger in your face a little bit and I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to wrestle with this. And ask just a few questions here. Because these are sort of the things that people will sometimes ask. So baptism in your spiritual journey, the apps here. What if I'm not mature enough? What if I'm not mature enough? Two things here, and I've heard this, you know, I don't feel I'm ready, you know, and when you're hearing that from a 75-year-old woman or man, no, I'm just kidding, but, you know, there are people who will, like, wait and wait and wait on this because they feel like they're not mature enough. Well, baptism is not a late-stage act of maturity. Little story here. If you've ever felt indecisive, maybe you can relate to this story. The world's longest engagement was between Octavio Guillen and Adriana Martinez from Mexico. Apparently, Octavio popped the question. Adriana said yes. That was 1902 when they were 15 years old. One of them couldn't decide, so they kept putting off the wedding day. They finally got married in 1969 when they were both 82. It took Octavio and Adriana 67 years to decide to get married. They've been engaged for 67 years. 
All right, you know what? I mean, that's a little ridiculous, but some of you are like that with baptism because you feel like it's sort of one of those things where I've gotta be at a certain spiritual state. It's not a late stage act of maturity. It is meant to be our initiation into the Christian faith. It symbolizes several key theological concepts. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about how we're, we're all baptized into one body. So when we're baptized, it symbolizes you becoming part of the body of Christ. In Romans 6, it symbolizes your connection to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And the reason that you have power to change is because the life of Christ is in you. His death, his burial, his resurrected life. The Spirit of God is in you, changing you. So it symbolizes these things. And it makes no sense that the symbol of these spiritual events would not closely correspond to the timing of them. Those all happen as soon as we receive Christ by faith. So why wouldn't baptism take place as soon as we receive Christ by faith? It's not a late stage act of maturity. You're mature enough. Now for some of you with with children, and many of you here have, have younger children, and, and you might be asking yourself, when, when should I be encouraging them to get baptized? And, and here would be my answer to that, because I've had parents ask me to interview their children and baptize them at times before I've even been comfortable with it, because you want them to be able to really articulate the gospel. You want them to be able to articulate that they understand that Jesus is the Son of God, they understand the cross and what it did for them, and they understand the Lordship of Christ and what that means for them. And, and you know, you, uh, a seven-year-old's gonna say that a lot differently than a 12-year-old, and then a 19-year-old, and then a 30-year-old. But those elements need to be there. And I don't wanna be the one who's unwilling to baptize young children, but they need to be coherent about the gospel. So when they look back on it, they can have confidence that they knew what they were doing. What if I'm not mature enough? Second, what if I've waited too long? Seems insignificant now. So maybe you're a person who's like, you know what, I believe that, you know, I've trusted in Jesus by faith many, many years ago. I didn't get baptized, so I'm just, now it just doesn't seem to be a big deal. Well, here's, I would say a couple of things to that, but thank you for asking that question. I know of one exception in the New Testament on the baptism expectation. I know of one, one. Jesus is dying on the cross. There's a dude next to him who's on another cross He's talking to Jesus. There's a dude on the other side of him who's taking shots at Jesus. This dude defends Jesus to the other dude and says, hey, we're here because we belong here. This guy's done nothing. Says to Jesus, remember me today when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That was what we call a deathbed conversion. If you are being crucified and you don't have an opportunity to be baptized because you've got nails in your hands, I'm gonna give you a pass. I'm gonna give you a pass because that's the one exception we find in the New Testament. But I do wanna warn you about kind of what's going on in Christianity today. And, And this is a trend that should scare all of us for the future of faith. There are people saying, you know what? Baptism isn't necessary for salvation, and I would actually agree with that, even though I only know of one exception in the New Testament where somebody wasn't baptized. So like, hey, I'm trusting Jesus. That's just this external thing, kind of like the marriage ceremony. I don't really need it. 
So you have Christians saying there really isn't a need for baptism and, and there really isn't a need for the church even though it's commanded. I can just have my own relationship with Jesus. We've got this real trend where basic ceremony and basic expectations and connections don't matter. And people think they can have a private relationship with Jesus. Well, I'm not saying that a lot of those people aren't gonna end up in heaven, but it's not New Testament Christianity. And our responsibility is to mimic the New Testament, because it's all we have. Jesus commanded this. It's just the thing to do. And if you've waited a long time, it's just like putting off anything that's important in any area of life. It doesn't go away, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, because it's still a next step of obedience for many of us. And here's the big question. Here's the big question. What if I got the order wrong? Does my infant baptism still suffice? Okay, this is where it's probably gonna feel a little personal. And I, I hope that you don't have to talk about me too much at lunch after this. But this is where, this is where it feels personal because I know a lot of you were baptized as infants and you're just thinking, I don't need to do this. It kind of feels a little awkward at this stage. I wanna show you a passage of scripture. I'm gonna run through it quickly. This is Acts chapter 19 and this is a fascinating passage of scripture. I think I can read it from here. And, I hope you can read it from there. Now it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, on the contrary, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. He said, well, into what then were you baptized? They said, John's baptism, Paul said. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the perfect answer to that question for those of us who have some baptism in our spiritual heritage but never went through believer's baptism. So here's what's going on. The Apostle Paul is speaking to what I would call pre-Christians. They're kind of like followers of Jesus-ish, but they don't have full knowledge of the gospel. So when the church started, they really weren't included. They were, they were Jews, they were circumcised, they had that ceremony. When John the Baptist was running around preaching, they got baptized with John's baptism, which was with a partial understanding of Jesus. John the Baptist was running around saying, hey, there's somebody coming soon after me, and he's the real deal, and I just want to get your heart ready. Get baptized as a symbol of your repentance. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people got baptized. In fact, some people thought he was the Messiah. He was famous. He was a big deal. We don't think of it that way. But in Jewish culture, he was a big deal. He was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's a big deal. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people were baptized, including this group of people Paul runs into. But they had an incomplete faith. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They weren't yet fully Christian. So Paul helped them finish the journey. He explained Jesus to them. They understood it and embraced it, and then he baptized them again. Now what's interesting about this, they not only were circumcised at eight days of age, the men among them, but they were also baptized as adults just months before this. And now Paul is saying, and now you really need to be baptized now that you understand the gospel fully and are making a public declaration of them. It was literally a second adult baptism because now they understood Jesus. Baptism is a declaration of faith. 
it doesn't make sense that one would not choose it again after faith as the Bible teaches us. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I recognize this is a hard subject for many of us who might feel like, hey, I've, I've done it. And yet maybe we really haven't done it. And I pray that you would help, just help each of us to have a heart to, to mimic the pattern of your word just like we are to mimic Jesus. Uh, we should be mimicking the experiences that are outlined in the scriptures for us. And I pray that you would help us uh, to do that. Thank you for every person here and the place in their spiritual journeys that they are and how you are working in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.